people learn what they know. And some of those things and some of those means through which we learn things are profitable and are good and are an opportunity to grow. But there are also ways that we learn that teach us wrongly. But yet, sometimes they feel the safest. Some of us have learned a lot of things because we've been around people. We've just gleaned certain opportunities, certain actions, certain ideas from those around us. Others, other things that we know we have learned because we've looked for them. We've gone after knowledge and wisdom. We've read encyclopedias or newspapers or journals or opinions. We've gone on the World Wide Web and we've found all sorts of connections. Sometimes we learn things just through culture. Just because it's the way things are here, therefore it must be the same there. Sometimes we learn things through history. We see, well, that happened this way, so why not us? And there's never going to be an end to these learnings. We're always obtaining information, hearing words, seeing things, thinking, contemplating, even subconsciously acquiring ideas and philosophies and everything else. The question is, are we learning rightly? Are we learning truth? When it comes to being a Christian, to being a follower of Christ, are we learning what the gospel is and what the gospel does? Are we learning about living our faith out in the community because the scripture is teaching us or are we learning based on what the world has shown us? Do we parrot or mimic the, those so-called, quote, strong Christians that we esteem because they seem to stand for truth? Do we say we know what we know concerning the truth of the Bible because we listen to our pastor? And sometimes we might even think that that's silly to even contemplate. Why are you caring how we learn? As long as we're learning, because, beloved, if we're not learning from the Word in its context, we are not learning from God. Now, there are people in the world who believe that there is this amazing restrictive power that God works in the lives of true regenerate people that keeps them from ever learning error. That's not the case. Christians are more susceptible to learning error than anyone because they're going to be in the context of people who talk about their subject. They're going to be looking at other ideas relating to the subject of faith. They're going to be inundated by history and culture and examples all throughout faith. And they're going to learn by those who are in power, supposedly in authority before them in the faith. And so we are most susceptible to error. Unless we hold fast to the unchangeable scripture and we are reading it. Reading it, just like Brother Armando read a lot of passages today, and in the hearing of that word, we were enriched and blessed and reminded, and we were taught. But it's not sufficient for us to come together on the Lord's Day and hear me talk. 
if we're not also eating and preparing for that instruction. Now, that's not said newly for you. It's not something that I've just decided to start talking about. It is the horse that I beat that has died and rotted and come back to life. And I will continue to beat that horse and beat that drum. Because if you are not reading the Word of God, there is very little effect in what I teach to you. Elders, overseers, are teachers. They must be able to teach. Chapter 3 of 1 Timothy says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunk, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if one does not know how to manage his own home, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. Now I want us to, remind, to remember that Paul is writing to Timothy a very young man who had spent a lot of time with Paul in the mission field, who learned from Paul directly. And now he is primarily the chief elder of the city of Ephesus, which probably held thousands of believers, thousands of believers. And there weren't buildings set aside for the gathering of the saints. The gathering of the saints oftentimes in Jewish communities happened in the synagogue and then from there they went into the homes. They literally would gather together in the Jewish center of religion. The same thing would be true for first century Ephesus. That they would gather together in the open places because it's the only place they could fit. And then from there their ministry went into the homes. And when persecution got harder, then they would begin to hide in underground areas or hide in living rooms or dens as we would know them. They didn't have living rooms and dens. Uh, th th those weren't architectural realities of the first century life. They didn't have rooms set aside for that kind of stuff. But as we think about the first church and we think about Paul instructing and commanding Timothy as an elder, then this letter by God's purposes has been preserved for the elders to know what they ought to be doing, especially in the context of division, strife, false teaching, etc. When there are problems in the body, this is what you need to know, Timothy. Now, Paul was not teaching Timothy what he should do and how he should be qualified. Timothy already knew those things. Paul wasn't saying, now, Timothy, you need to check yourself, and you make sure that this is who you are. But Timothy is supposed to be teaching the church. And he's supposed to be teaching the church according to these qualifications. He's supposed to be teaching the church to understand that no matter what the culture says, that men and women alike have the equal opportunity to learn the Scripture. No matter what the culture says, no matter what the ideologies of Jewish leadership might even have taught, that every person in the body of Christ has the right to learn the Scripture and be a disciple of Christ. And that the elders, the qualified men who are called by God to be overseers of the church, one of their primary tasks, you'll notice that, all these are character tasks except for that one. They must be able to teach. Now this is not an option. 
If one is called to be an elder of the church and he does not have the gift of teaching from God, he cannot be an elder of the church. He is completely disqualified permanently. These other things we can work on, can't we? We can submit to the scripture in the context of being self-controlled, respectable, devoted to our wives, devoted to our homes, making sure that we're not doing the ministry for greed, etc., etc. But we can't just say, well, now you're a teacher. But then we ask ourselves, what does it even mean to teach? To some people, teaching means standing here and blabbing their mouths. So right now, I'm going to teach you about teaching. Some people think teaching is preaching. Two different things. You can preach on any subject. Preaching includes an exhortation, a public proclamation, and it's something that's been common from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry when John the Baptist went out and proclaimed and preached the gospel. You notice that when we hear a lot of uh, open-air preachers in our culture today, we don't see them using the scripture much in exposition, but they get out there and repeat the same rerun for an hour, 20 times, without any context. That's not teaching. It may be preaching, but it's not preaching anything with substance. Preaching must include teaching. But teaching is teaching. It also is not something that must be done eloquently. Being able to stand in front of a room and get people to listen and entertain them or have a rhetorical presence is not, is not something that's required. Paul himself, the apostle to the apostles, the apostle to the Gentiles, Paul himself would say to the Corinthians, you know, I didn't come here with plausible speech and intelligence and philosophy and great wisdom. He said, I came to you in weakness, frailty, barely able to stand, stuttering, speaking softly, weakly, in tears. So that the cross would not lose its power. I came to proclaim the gospel. It doesn't matter in the, the, the tenacity or the eloquence in which it is expressed. Now, don't get me wrong. As you learn to talk and teach, for those of us who have ever taught anything, you do get better at it because you're more comfortable with it. Um, but it doesn't mean that you have to be professional. Speaking softly, saying um after um, every um word um. It might be annoying to some, but when it comes to teaching, the scripture is perfectly okay. May not be so if you're trying to sell a big corporation something expensive, or if you're selling a video for $3,000 on how to, you know, do finance. But when it comes to the Bible, it doesn't matter. Those things aren't here. But have we not learned through experience, exposure, history, tradition, that pastors must have a stage presence? Have we not learned that? I mean, after all, even what is noted in history by some of the great pastors who taught pastors and great in the context of their fame, not necessarily their truth. One of them would even say that a man has to have a certain size chest cavity so that he can be heard. 
I remember the first time someone told me that. After I was speaking without a microphone and I was speaking loudly and clearly. And this old pastor came up to me and put his hand on my shoulder after. He says, I know you're a man called of God because no, the voice that you have and how it moves is definitely a gift of God. And I'm thinking, are you kidding me? I learned that from yelling at my brothers. It's not about it. It's not about it. The elder must be able to teach. And we can go, go to Ephesians. We can see Ephesians 4. God gives gifts to the church. We see what, what's happening there in, in, in the sense that God gives the, the teachers and the pastors, the apostles, the prophets... He gives the pastors and the overseers, those who teach the church, what? He gives them to the church as a gift that they may build up the church that they may know. That they may what? That they may teach the church. To do what? Build itself up. See, that's a misapplication of the role of elder. Everybody thinks that we're supposed to be leaders, and we are in certain areas, but not in everything. That's absurd. We cannot do everything except where we're gifted so if we're not gifted in teaching we cannot be an elder and teaching lends itself to understanding right sure you can hand me an outline on the subject and when four or five minutes I may be able to teach what's written there but it doesn't mean that I know the subject it doesn't mean that I can actually instruct you in it if I can't take questions from the floor I don't know the subject matter if I can't say it in a different way, I ought not be teaching it. I'm just a narrator. The elder who teaches is qualified to teach by the Lord. He's gifted to teach by the Lord. And it comes with a simple understanding of the authority and sufficiency of Scripture alone. It is why we must always exhort the body to be reading the Bible or listening to the Bible. It does not take long to hear 1 Timothy read in a slow and stately manner. Six minutes, maybe? Versus the 90 that it takes me to read aloud the Gospel of John, which I've done many times in a week when I was teaching it. And so if we're learning together, if we're growing together, the elders of the church are to look after the growing and the maturity and the instruction of the church so that it may build itself up in love, that it may build itself up in submission to the Word of God. So a teaching elder, and there is no other elder, no other type of elder. I'm saying that with emphasis. A man who cannot teach cannot oversee. But it doesn't mean that the man has to have the same ability that I have to stand here. Because preaching is not a requirement of an elder. You see the difference? The teaching that I give to you, to you all on the Lord's Day is definitely preaching. It's public. It's given from this place, this risen platform, so that you can all see when you really just need to hear. But there are some brothers who can oversee by teaching in the pews and oversee by teaching in the conversations, but the teaching must be a gift of God. 
So it implies that they know what they're doing. Paul will tell Timothy when we get to the second letter, we will see that, you know, the scripture is sufficient. It's sufficient for the man of God to be successful in everything God's called him to do. The scripture alone. The scripture alone. We don't need any other text. We don't need any other textbook. We don't need the Greek and the Hebrew text. Though it's incredible and it's fun and it's interesting and it does give us some depth to the beauty of it. I believe brothers ought to know the English first. You see? And I'm not knocking it. I'm a very educated person. I'm not anti-intellectualism. But I can tell you right now, and I can attest before God and all, that there's not one thing that I've learned in postgraduate studies and research that I did not already know by reading the Word of God. But yet, there's a lot of things that I've learned pretextually and outside the bounds of of Scripture that have surely eaten my brain cells that I love with a passion. This week, I've been reading a lot of case law. Hours of it. Interesting. It's not from the Word of God. Paul will tell Timothy to entrust reliable men the same thing that was entrusted to him. To teach other men who are called to the eldership to learn the Word of God, to teach the Word of God, to care for the flock. To be a worker approved by God. To be ready to preach and proclaim and teach and instruct with all authority and with all gentleness and with all patience and with all love anyone who's willing to sit and listen. But teaching is a very broad term, isn't it? I don't know if any of you have ever studied quantum physics. I have. I don't know if any of you have ever studied any type of geometry I have. It's just a hobby. But it doesn't give me any real life application if I study it. I just know some stuff. So if I ever get that one card in Trivial Pursuit that has something about that, I know that. It's like the first time I was playing a a game and if you got the right answer, you won and I knew what a paradiddle was. How do you know that? Because I'm a musician. Hung around drummers. Paradiddle, paradiddle. We, We know it's a little... Pattern. It's a rudiment. Basics of percussion. Does that make me a drummer? Not at all. Not at all. You may know the parts of a gun, but it doesn't make you a marksman. You may know the ins and outs of the Bill of Rights, but it doesn't make you a constitutional scholar or lawyer. You may even know a lot about neurosurgery, but you're not cutting on me. Even some doctors that are neurosurgeons don't know much about neurosurgery. And we may know a lot about biblical things and theological things and church things and elder things and teaching things and preaching things because we have experienced a whole plethora of these things, but it doesn't mean that we're gifted in instructing God's people. 
what is the role of the elder in teaching? I have answered this question. I don't even want to guess. I've probably written about this 50 times in the last 20 years in emails and responses, and I've probably had this conversation with people hundreds of times. What is an elder's role in teaching? Well, let's just look at the scripture. Must be able to teach. 2 Timothy 4, 2 says, preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Instruct your enemies with complete patience and teaching. So, what's the primary there? What's the foundation? A handle of the word of God. Rightly dividing the word of truth. A pastor who overseas teaches the church and thus feeds the church the necessary nutrients and the food in order for the church to grow and mature and then what? (laughs) Build itself up in love. So a pastor feeds the flock in this very way. Now a lot of people think that this is a trivial issue. Okay, give us a sermon, give us three points, let us fill it in, let's get out of here. That's not the point. The point is, in feeding the flock, we're actually encouraging you. We're actually enriching you. It's not just a theological lecture. I could sit here and talk about the qualifications of of the elder in about 15 minutes and get over with it. But now here I am in the second week talking about this stuff. Why? Didn't Paul just write it very quickly for Timothy? But how many years did Paul spend with Timothy? And how many years did Timothy mull over this letter and then expand it and then extrapolate its, its richness and then teach the other elders the same thing? And then one of the young men say, well, what happens when somebody spits on me? Can I punch him in the throat? No, you can't. That's part of the role of an elder, of an overseer, of a, tree, of a pastor, of a teacher, to teach the young man to simmer down a little bit, to give application in any type of situation so that the church may grow itself up in love. Is that loving? To punch your friend in the throat? Your enemy in the throat? Your neighbor in the throat? No, don't do it. An elder must not be given unto violence, but must be gentle, correcting his opponents with patience. And I believe that elders, I don't believe, the Bible instructs me in my patience as an elder to make sure that before I ever answer any divisive things in the church, that I have prayerfully and contextually researched it. Don't just say, what, yeah, I know this, boop, heresy, and start slapping people around. That's not what Paul says. Paul says, tell them all to hush, tell them all to calm down, and be subject to the teaching of Scripture. If they won't do that, send them on their way. Why? Because we can't have people causing division in the body. We have to take out their voices. Because that takes away the picture of Christ and his humility and the unity of the gospel of peace. It's not the gospel of chaos. It's the gospel of peace. So here we understand that a pastor, shepherd, elder must feed the flock. Why? Because teaching is good for the church. Teaching and overseeing the church is, you hear me say this a lot if you pay attention, 
for your joy. See, that's the stick of some of the cults that ring our doorbells. Wouldn't you love to have peace and joy? Absolutely. You're here to take all my kids? I mean, you know, jokes. You want to have peace and joy? Yeah, here's my husband. Take him right on. You hear it? I mean, everybody's looking for joy. Like the old country music song, looking for love in all the wrong places. We're looking for joy in all the wrong places. We're looking for joy in everything but where joy is. My joy I give to you, and it is not like that of the world. My peace I give to you, Jesus says, and it is not like that of the world. The world does not know it. It cannot know it. And the peace of Christ surpasses all understanding. It surpasses logic. It surpasses everything that's normative and rational and sane. Because it is something that is granted to us by God the Spirit through the hearing of the Word. And that is one of the primary functions of feeding the church. Is that we as elders oversee the joy of the church. And anything that takes away joy is probably unloving. Or circumstantial or experiential in which we then guide people to rest at peace in the understanding of God's sovereignty. And we provide for their needs whether they be physical or medical or psychological or spiritual. Or relational, financial, as we're able. We edify through teaching, we exhort, we admonish, we rebuke. Why? So that we may mature. And everything that the church is supposed to do learns and then stays on task through the teaching of the elder. The feeding of the church from the scripture. A church that is not fed the full counsel of God's word is a malnourished people. Now, there was a time when I was working in the grocery store right back here. That's where the tenant of this building moved just a block away. And I loved it. I cut meat. I stocked shelves. 16 years old. It was great. And every day when I got home from, I got out of school and I had to go to work, the first thing I did is I got me a half, well, a quart. Is that quart? Yeah. I got a quart of milk and a pack of Swiss cake rolls. Not a twin pack, a box. And I ate the whole box and I drank the whole thing of milk and I still was little. <laughs> I loved it. I was never hungry. And I always had energy. But if that had been my sustenance, I was certainly malnourished. Sometimes I think that's what the teaching of a non-focused, non-trained, non-qualified man does to the church. It makes it malnourished. So much so that when someone hears the full counsel of Scripture and they get instruction that they think, Oh, I'm not going to be manipulated by him. No, you're being commanded by Christ it's always the claim of the idiot who wants to be self-sufficient that they're being manipulated when they're actually being fed the word of God and we're all idiots when we don't want to listen isn't that right I mean let's just use the terms that actually cut to the case, cut to the chase right we're not being hard-headed or bullish. That sounds funny, bullheaded. But when somebody calls me an idiot, yeah, get a little closer and say that. A little closer, a little closer. I'm pray for you. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the point. 
And so theological things are part of the teaching of Scripture and part of the teaching of the church. And then the therefores, because these things are true, we find our sustenance and our center in the person of Christ, but then we live our lives in the instruction of Christ. So to, to take away any of that is to refuse Christ Himself. And so the doctrines of Christ are all that the Scripture instructs. The teachings of His person, the prophets, the apostles, and everything written there in the Gospels from start to finish. And the same people who would argue against what I just said are the same ones who say, oh, we don't need systematic theology, well then why do you have one? Why do you have a systematic theology called theological things only? Or why do you have a systematic theology that call the doctrines of Christ just the tulip? Or why do you have the systematic theology of saying it's only about grace and redemption? Therefore, folks, don't listen to every man that spews a good gospel. Because if he's not standing in here, he's not talking to you. He hasn't prayed for you. He hasn't thought the sermon through for you. He's not been instructed by God on your behalf. I've heard a lot of good teachings through the years, but these people didn't know who I was and surely weren't praying for me while I was watching those VCR tapes or those DVDs. So why regurgitate what they teach me without knowing me and then send it to you? What, what good is that? I've heard a pastor tell me one time that When men get up and just have all sorts of things to say, but they never teach the church anything, never apply anything, that they're really not holding much weight. And I agree with that to some degree because there is a growing process. But that is why the elders of the church need to come through and from the church. That's why the church needs to affirm their elders. To be able to say, yes, this man is called. This man is teaching. This man is discipling others already. And he's qualified. Let's affirm him. So we feed the flock. The second thing that I... And there's not a number or a list. I've got nine in some things. I've got five in others. I've got three in others. But, you know, you have to fight. You have to fend. You have to protect. That's the word. We protect the flock. From what? You see, some people would say, well, the pastors have to rule the church with an iron fist and keep out the devils. Oh, come on. God is putting the devils everywhere. God's got a sack of devils like a salt shaker. You ever spilled salt? You're not going to get it all up. There's salt underneath your stove that's been there since you moved in. At least a kernel. At least a grain. Is it a grain? It's a grain. Speck. Dust. Don't believe me? Get under there and lick. It'll be salty. Don't do that. If you do, don't tell me. But we protect the flock. The idea of protecting the flock is, is given to there. We are always able and willing to teach in and out of season. That means that it's not always going to be pleasant. It's not always going to be positive. It's not always going to be received or wanted. 
the last thing I wanted to do when I had done something silly is for my mom or dad to sit me down and talk about it. For somebody well-meaning to call me up and go, I see you're struggling. Let me tell you something now. We're going to read the Bible together. I don't want to hear that. Do you? No, that's out of season. Or it may not even be good to hear. But who's the audience? Ultimately. God. We worship and we gather for his sake and for his name. And he is glorified in the teaching of his people. And the instruction of his people. So we teach in order to protect the flock from false doctrine. How do we do that? Let me tell you how you don't do it. You don't teach false doctrine. Hey, I want everybody to know that you could, you could poison yourself if you drink this. I'm going to give everybody a little taste so you know what it's like. It's going to kill you, but only a little bit. You know what it tastes like. Come here. That sounds like something a cult from history. I tell you, you know, you got to be careful. There's some kidnappers out there, children, and you take your child and you throw him out in the back parking lot of Walmart at 2 a.m. and you drive off. Oh, yeah, I'm going to follow the kidnappers around and get my kid back. See, I just wanted you to know how bad it was out there. You know what teaching, false teaching, is? Teaching. False teaching. It's instructing people in error. And you know what our flesh does, Christian? We love that junk. We love that stuff. Newspapers would go bankrupt if they only printed the positive stories. Tabloids would not exist. Bat Boy and Elvis are still dead. (laughs) Nothing. Social media would dry up. Although cat pictures are still the number one thing on the internet. I have proven that in the last few weeks. You know, Jesus Christ is God over all. The nations glorify him. Praise him for his mercy and grace and love. You know, five likes. Here's my study, buddy. Three million people. <laughs> There's a cat sitting at my feet. Well, I could go back and spiritualize that. No. We protect the flock by teaching the truth. And we warn against false doctrine by emphasizing the truth in the same manner that Paul would. What was the false doctrine of Hymenaeus and Alexander? What was the direct um, problem going on in some of these other things? You see the, the subject. You know what was happening with the Judaizers because that was their stick. They had t-shirts with circumcision things on it. Bumper stickers, you know. But Paul didn't get into all that. The emphasis of shepherding people through teaching and preaching is to emphasize the positive according to the Scripture in a manner that is congruent with learning. Now, yes, there is a time, and I have done that, where there is something inside the body of Christ that we have to handle, and unfortunately we have to talk a little bit about other types of things. For example, a comparison. Or some of you have asked questions several years ago about Arminianism and Pelagianism, so I did an entire sermon on those things. But if every time I preach, all I'm doing is rebuttals, I'm not teaching the counsel of of Scripture. And if 
I'm five years into shepherding the same congregation, and you still haven't gotten out the negative to put in the positive to live according to the grace of God and the gospel, then we got a bigger problem. So we protect the church from false doctrine. We protect the church from heresies. We protect the church from people who are cunning. People who come in and are law teachers and don't even know it themselves. Well, you're probably not saved because you're not doing this. You're probably not saved because you haven't said this. You're probably not saved because you don't believe this this way. You know one of the beauties of being born again is that faith is the granting of repentance, which is a divine work of God that changes the disposition of the mind to stop pondering all the garbage that might get us into righteousness and truly rest in the sure and steady anchor of Jesus Christ alone. God has not called us in, our, in His Word to go back through and remember every false thing or every wrong profession or every unconverted season of our lives so that we might say, yes, I've repented of that. That is, that is Romanism. And that is a false gospel. We protect the church from these things. That the world would bring in other pastors, other pastors or other Christians might suppose and impose on the church. Beloved, we're weak people. And we get feisty and frustrated. The shepherds of the church must always keep the peace by first reminding the flock of the gospel and fighting for the flock. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, Paul says, but against the principalities and the rulers, the authorities and the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And all of that, according to Paul in Romans, happens mostly in the mind, doesn't it? The pastor must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. He must protect and fight for the flock in truth so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. We've already been seeing that. We're going to see that in 2 Timothy even more. We do rebuke those who contradict it. What does that look like? That's not okay. Stop. This is the truth. Yes, sir. All is well. That's as far as it goes. It's to correct. Or, I don't understand. Well, look, you know what? I'll spend the next five years teaching you patiently. Just don't teach that stuff. Don't talk about that. Don't interject that stuff into the body. Don't pass around the poison just because you think it's refreshing. Matter of fact, hand me that poison. I'll put it in my cult shelf. Don't read that anymore. Stay off that. Just deactivate your Facebook account. That would be my wisdom, young brother. Where are you getting this stuff? My neighbor, stop. See, there's always a source, isn't there? Good shepherding helps fend for the flock to protect it. We see Acts 20, 28 through 31. It says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers in order to care for the church of God, 
which he obtained with his own blood. And this is serious stuff, y'all. So it's no, it's no light-hearted matter. I'm a pastor now. Hot diggity jig. I mean, no. Uh-uh. It is grave. It is not a job because sometimes it doesn't pay. It is not a career or a vocation, even though vocation means divine call. <laughs> it is not something that you can just pop in and out of. It is something that God calls you to until he doesn't call you to. Nobody's just sitting at the house going, I think I'd like to do that. That's how we start, though, isn't it? <laughs> and then we get in and go, I don't like this. I don't like this. It's tough. Guys, it's, it's hard. You've got this command and this divine call, and you've got humans. You've got humans to deal with. You've got people to deal with. And you think, well, everybody loves the Lord the same. No, they don't. How do you know? Because they don't love each other. That's how you know they don't love the Lord. And so what do you do? You unbelieving heretic. No. Brother, you've got you to gotta calm down and love people. Here's an opportunity to serve. Jesus Christ purchased the church with his own life, with his blood. Paul says to these elders in Acts 20 that I was reading, he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. What is he telling them there? Y'all going to be divided. Y'all going to be devoured. You're going to be set at odds. You're going to be chomped to bits. Think about it for a second. A wolf doesn't come in and hang out and pretend to believe the gospel for years and years and years and then start licking behind the sheet. No, he comes in and he's already got his eye on a, on a target. A wolf comes in to eat. And they want to eat the weak. They want to eat those who aren't supposedly the way they think they should be. And they're going to come in and they're going to make blood. Division, hatred, fear, animosity, frustration, all these things, a wolf will stir it. And when a wolf is rebuked, stop, you know it's a wolf because it won't stop. It'll run across the street and keep barking. And from among your own selves, Paul says, will arise men speaking twisted things in order to draw away my, uh, the followers of Christ after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. That's the call of teaching. Is this going to be in turmoil? It's not going to be everything's great. It's going to be we've got to teach to correct We've got to do it in a way that's gentle. We want God to get the credit and the glory for it. So we are the waiters bringing the meal to the table. We're not preparing anything. So we protect the flock. We fight, we fight for the flock. And it's, this fight is not against other people. It's against the principalities, the powers of darkness. It is something that the spiritual battle that's never going to end. It's a promise. I don't like it. I've had seasons of ministry that just say, you know, you've all been here. It's like, man, this is the greatest thing ever. I can never see anything else in life beyond this. There's nothing greater. And then we have issues, and we think, this is the worst thing I've ever <laughs> been a part of. This is the hardest thing I've ever had to experience. I'm not going to survive. Have you ever felt that? I'm not going to survive this faction. 
I'm not going to survive this difference. I'm not going to survive this person. So then the elders have a responsibility to teach. To teach, to instruct, to lead. As I've recently started to understand a little better, to coach. This is what's true. It's the foundations. Here's our tools. Now let's get it done. Let's do it. Feels better, doesn't it? Feels different. It's not authoritative in a dictatorial way. It's authoritative in a successful way. It's the authoritative the teaching of the scripture to the church is authoritative because it is Christ's teaching. But it is done in such a way that actually edifies the church and builds it, not, not tears it down that it may fall into a certain mold. That's not biblical teaching. But yet, isn't that the case? Isn't it easier for me to just pound the mess out of an adversary or out of a problem or out of a cultural thing that we like or don't like to get the amens, to get butts in the seats and dollars in the box? Isn't it easier? Doesn't it feel better to have a thousand people who do not know you to say, "Ah, I'm with you, but where are they? Who is really with you, beloved? Your elders are with you. In the teaching, we ought to be with each other. As elders who teach, we are fighting for the flock when we study the word. We are fighting for the flock when we pray. We are fighting for the flock when we disciple others. In Hebrews chapter 13, the command is given by Paul to the Hebrew Christians. Verse 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will answer to God. That's a paraphrase. They will give an account of what they've done to the sheep. You know who we don't give an account to? It doesn't matter. We give an account to God. <laughs> it's not an easy thing. James chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you ought to be teachers, beloved. For those who teach are held to a stricter judgment. And if you don't think that's real, just say something doctrinally on the Internet. Say something politically on the Internet. Say something other than post a cat video. You're going to be crucified by somebody. Let the leaders, let the elders do this with joy and not groaning. For that is of no advantage to you. You know why? Because I cannot, I cannot feed you and fend for you and fight for you if I cannot pray and study effectively. And when my heart is destroyed, when, the, when, a, when an elder feels constantly burdened and fearful, he can't do his job. But he has to. Or quit. And that's an option. It is okay to step out of the ministry. It is okay to say, I've had enough. Because when you're at the point where you don't care, or you're at the point where you can't care, you can turn around and sit in the pews. Preaching and teaching are acts of war, spiritual tools given by God for power in the lives of His people. Teaching is the point of the gathering. And when someone is taught, 
through the scripture, they learn to do something. And in the case of the church, we also learn to be a people for his glory. But elders in their teaching must also follow Christ before the flock. I wrote some years ago this paragraph related to that. It says, the duties of a pastor will cause him to display his faith and carry his church where God has brought him personally. He should display the fruits of the Spirit of God and all that he does by God's grace alone, knowing that he is nothing but a slave to righteousness. He is not a divine leader who rules, but a servant who dies. As I've said already, a friend of mine, a mentor in the faith, when I was very young, said to me that if a man has to say that he is the leader, he's lost the privilege there to lead. He continued by saying that a man that goes forth with no one following him is just, quote, a man taking a walk. By the Lord's grace, may the pastor and the elders of Grace Truth Church not fail in this duty. Peter, chapter 5 of his first epistle. So I exhort the elders among you as fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, Commandment, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly. As God would have you, not for shameful gain. And that could be money, power, ego, whatever. But eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples of the flock. Imagine eager preaching and shepherding. It is the hardest thing in the world, but yet it's the most fulfilling experience of my life is that no matter how hard and horrible and painful my morning might be, all I ever want to do sometimes is hide and run and avoid. But God in His power somehow allows me to come and stand here. And I don't understand why. Be an example to the flock. No matter what, we can continue in the faith. And in doing so, we fulfill our call. The elder in teaching is fulfilling his call. And the success of the church and the success of the qualified man who teaches the church and oversees her joy and growth is not numbers. It is not baptisms. It is not professions of faith as the evangelical world likes to count. Whatever that means anymore. It is not that at all. It is faithfulness. It is the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to submit to His command and His instruction about the faithfulness of him who kept quiet, the faithfulness of him who subjected himself to the one who was faithful, the Father, Second Peter, and the faithfulness of his word to do that which he intended for it to do, which three weeks ago when we started this little journey, we talked about that. My word will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish all that I have sent it to do. So when the elders and the congregation don't see a lot of things taking place, a lot of maturing, a lot of uh, reconciliation. It is not because if the scripture is being used and people are held to its standard, it's not because the word of God has failed. It's because God is doing something different 
and the hearers of those who reject it. And no one who rejects the word of God has said, if they stay in the faith, have said, well, I've rejected that, the word. They don't do that. They reject you or they reject me. But Jesus says it this way, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. For if my cat meows out the scripture, we as God's children are subject to its authority. Not to the cat, to the Lord. I'm just like a cat. Just a mouth. Just a tool. Just a servant of God. And I pray that I'm effective. And if I do what I'm called to do, I am. Future elders of this church must rest here more than anything. Professionals can easily produce the right numbers and manipulate the minds of man, but it is God alone that produces the fruit of the labors of any ministry so that he alone gets the glory. God called Noah and Isaiah to fruitless ministries according to the world's standards, but yet God fulfilled his complete purposes in them all. Noah could easily say, I failed. We're the only household that came on the boat. Look at all those people I didn't get on the boat. He didn't say that. Because he knew that the measure of the boat would only house eight. elder must spend time praying and preparing his oversight through study so that he can teach and train the church so that he can train new teachers also to continue the church now this type of teaching is not very powerful is it like today learning about teaching it's like i could have drawn something or i could have been someplace else i could have just listened to this beloved it's important You need to know my job. You need to know what the elders of this church are supposed to be doing. And you need to know what future elders of this church must be doing. And then next week, not next week, the week after, we'll get into deacons. And then soon thereafter, as this year opens up, we'll have new elders and new deacons. By the mercies of God. Because Christ has bought his church through his blood. And we need to understand that the calling of teaching the church is not about intellectual theological things. It's about life. It's about life that is in Christ alone and life together that is for the sake of Christ alone. This is not about us. It's not about me. God help me. Wipe away the record of my teaching when I go. It's not necessary for you when I'm gone. It's not necessary. The gospel is not new. It has never changed. And God will put his preachers amongst his church to show them the truth in the scripture. Beloved, I implore you, I beg of you to be in the scripture. And thus, be intimate with Jesus Christ himself. Let's pray. 
Father, there are so many practical things taught in this letter that are commanded to me through Paul's commands to Timothy because your word, your word is sufficient. And so, Father, the most, most of all, I pray that you would give us peace and peace of mind. That we would know what we ought to be in addition to what we already are. Father, that we would never put hope in our maturity. That we would never measure our eternal destiny by our growth. And that we would never, ever hold any of our brothers or sisters to any other condition except that which is clearly taught in Scripture. And even when we do that, Father, we do it with humility, knowing that it is only by your mercy and your love for your people that you've granted us the mind to even understand these things. And so as we take of your table today to remember the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, let us remember that we do so because we are one body. Help us to pray for each other. Those who are not able to be here today because of travel and several families who are not well, we pray healing over them, healing of their feet and of their lungs and of their mind. Father, some of their emotions and their fear. Father, help take away idols in our lives. Idols of nationalism and rights and liberties. Idols of talking points and everything else. Father, idols of, 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 of power and prestige and honor and the glory that comes from man. Father, help us take away these things. Help us put away these things. And just be in awe of the beauty of your son Jesus Christ. The creator of all things come to sacrifice himself for the sake of his people. To give credit for his perfect righteousness to us. So that we are your children. Not just in name. But by grace. And Lord strengthen our faith. Strengthen our trust. Strengthen our rest. That we may not look to ourselves to answer the questions and to make the changes. But, Father, truly just walk almost as if insane in a place of peace that our anxieties and fears and frustrations would just cease. And Lord, I pray for this church and for the families therein. I pray for the elders and those who will become elders and deacons, Lord, and for their households, that you would protect us all and keep us focused on that which is truth. Lord, I pray for those relationships that are seeking reconciliation. Lord, for those who are seeking a church family. And Father, in all these things, we pray that you would do your will and have it done for the sake of your name. In Jesus' name we pray.